There from his quiver full of shafts two arrows did he take. Of sundry works to one causeth love, the other doth it slake. That causeth love is all of gold, with point full sharp and bright. That chaseth love is blunt, whose steel with leaden head is dight. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And so obviously we're talking about Cupid today. That's right. It's Valentine's Day. Is it? Yes. Is it actually Valentine's Day? Yes. Actual Valentine's Day. Okay. Yeah. So we figured, well, we got we to gotta do some sort of Valentine's episode. We had the, the episode uh, where we talked to Tamara Hart uh, mm-hmm. previously, but this is the day itself. About towers of snail sex. Yeah. So it, it seemed proper to get a little mythological here as we kick off this episode and to turn to that mythological figure, that god of uh, romantic love, Cupid. The creepy smooth baby who shoots arrows with heart tips. Yes. Now, the, the reading at the top of the episode was, uh, was Ovid. Uh, that was from The Metamorphosis, uh, the Golding translation. Uh, so that was a, how you get words like dight. Dight, yeah. <laughs> Which means clothed or equipped. I had to look that one up. <laughs> yeah, it, it might be, not be completely clear. But what Ovid is basically saying is, hey, Cupid has two different arrows that he may pull from his quiver. You often forget this or maybe never even learned it in the first place. Well, right. If you're just going off of cheesy Valentine's Day cards, you just think of that cartoon baby. And like you said, the arrows have just kind of a goofy cartoon heart at the end. And, and Cupid's launching those at people and making them you know, fall in cartoon love with people. Yeah, well, you tend to not think of Cupid's arrow as literally being an arrow that strikes with force and penetrates the, the flesh. Uh, I I guess we are to understand it that way, at least uh, the ancients did. Like there's this poem by Anna Creon that Robert and I were talking about before the episode where it, it's not actually that great of a poem. I don't know if it's worth reading, but it makes this joke about Cupid gets stung by a bee and he starts crying and his mother, I guess this would be Aphrodite or Venus maybe c- comes to him and is trying to console him and says, uh, you know, you're crying about being stung by a bee, but you shoot people with arrows <laughs> all the time. That must hurt more. Shot through the heart. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so he so he has two different arrows that he he chooses from when mm-hmm. he decides to to nail somebody. Uh, one of these arrows, as the as Ovid says, is tipped in gold with a sharp point and bright. Right, and so that's the that's the love arrow. Mm-hmm. That is the the romantic love arrow. But then he has this leaden arrow. Yes, which it, it sounds like it's it's probably not an, an arrowhead composed entirely of lead for reasons we'll explain. Uh, but it is at least coated or tipped in lead somehow. Well, and it also says it is blunt, meaning mm-hmm. I, I assume it is not meant to penetrate, but maybe strikes more like a like a beanbag gun. Yeah, like just to brain you. Right? Yeah, <laughs> with this dense leaden uh, arrowhead. Yeah, just to just smack you hard, and and then it also it imparts aversion. So like it hits you, and now you you wanna you wanna not be around somebody. I guess right. This seems th- this seems to be the most popular interpretation of the leaden arrow's power. That I was looking around, uh, and, and I did see at least one description saying that the lead and arrow uh, had to do with set, with sensual passion, hmm. but I don't think that's the predominant interpretation. It's certainly not the one that we're going to spend much time with here today, because uh, sensual passion. There are other gods for that. Uh, you know, Cupid's domain is more about uh, uh, that that, uh, that that romantic passion. 
the eros or or the philos or I, I, I lose track of what love is what in Greek. Philodo. <laughs> Pure love. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we'll be we'll be getting into the Greek and Roman stuff uh, shortly. Okay, but yes, we're going to be talking about Cupid, and I do I, I do encourage everyone to maybe put aside the the more cherubic uh, interpretations of uh, of Cupid as we discuss uh, this figure, because we have to remember he is a god. Mm-hmm. Um, he is capable of, uh, of 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 wrecking people's lives with his mischief. Yeah, and he's not always depicted as a as a baby. He's he's often de- he's usually depicted as youthful, certainly. Yeah, and that may be a, a male youth or a boy. Uh, he's very often in, you know depicted uh, naked or nearly so, and sometimes he's blindfolded as well. I think, love is blind, right? Oh, yeah, I didn't think of that. Well, I I think he's often depicted as a baby, just because if he were an adult, he would be a horrifying, gross creep, right? <laughs> well, there's still there's still always room to find Cupid creepy for sure. All right, well, who is Cupid? Where did he come from in in the pantheon and the mythology? Okay, so Cupid is the Roman variant of the Greek god Eros, the primeval god of love, a son of chaos. Though in later traditions, uh, he is depicted as a son of Aphrodite, uh, who's the Roman Venus, uh, who's the goddess of sexual love and beauty. And as far as the father goes, it's all across the board. They're very <laughs> different mm-hmm. tellings. Sometimes it's Zeus. Sometimes it's uh, it's Ares. Uh, there's at least one version where it's, uh, it's it seems like it's Vulcan, the god of uh, of the forge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in but then a lot of stories have it uh, have Hermes as the father, uh, who of course is the Roman Mercury. So it's a real Mari show. Yes. Yeah, you can very much imagine there being a lot of drama around this. But he's a god of passion and love, uh, but also uh, of fertility to a certain extent as well. Mm -hmm. Now, in Roman traditions, Cupid is largely described as a son of Venus and Mercury, combining their roles into that of a divine messenger of love. Oh, okay. So Mercury is the messenger. Aphrodite is love. So he brings you the the love signals. uh, He's he's the radar love god. Yeah, yeah. Don't – so you can't really hate the messenger, right? Uh, I guess that's part of the, the the story here as well. Now he's often depicted as this kind of cherubic creature, like we described, but also sometimes as more of a, you know, an uh, an androgynous, youthful figure. Sometimes clad in armor, because mm-hmm. I guess love is also a battlefield, right? <laughs> and he's sometimes a mischief maker. Uh, other times, a generous patron of love. His targets include both mortals and other gods. And uh, as always, the versions of the, the myth vary with the teller and the time, uh, but we certainly want to, to tell the, the major Cupid story. Well, tell me the story, Robert. All right. So his mother, again, is Venus, and Venus has, is, is subject to bouts of jealousy, mm-hmm. pretty much like all of the, the major gods in the pantheon, right? Right. And so she, uh, one day, she has had enough of this beautiful mortal by the name of Psyche. She's just too too lovely. Uh, she's so lovely that other mortals are afraid uh, to approach her. And, and Venus isn't having it. She tasks her son Cupid uh, and says, go to this woman, shoot her with a golden arrow of love, and then make her fall in love with the first thing she sees. Because okay. uh, that's the power of the arrow in this, uh, in this interpretation of it. And she adds, make sure that the next thing she sees is the most hideous creature imaginable. I don't care what it is. Use your imagination. <laughs> she falls in love with the font papyrus. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been good. Um, so Cupid Cupid goes down to earth to do this, but he can't quite bring himself to finish the task, though he was certainly 
okay with the plan enough to trick her parents into abandoning her on a desolate hilltop so that she could wed a monster. But uh, as far as Wait, actually, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because she's taken the psyche is taken to this hill, and uh-huh. like, here you go. Sorry, the gods want you to marry a monster. It's going to happen. See you later. Because, you know, you do what, do what the gods say or, or suffer. Okay. Uh, but then he can't actually shoot her with the arrow, so instead he pricks himself with the golden arrow and then gazes upon Psyche, falls in love with her. And uh, so he takes her away, sets her up in a protected uh, place like a palace somewhere uh, where he can visit her safely, but only in darkness. And then, but then one night she casts light upon him and she learns his identity, spilling wax on him in the process, and he flees. Okay. So Psyche is distraught. She's, she's in love with this, this god, this beautiful uh, young god boy. So she searches for him. And finally, Venus agrees to hand him over, but only if she completes a series of trials. Uh-oh. Yeah, never a good sign in a myth, right? You get the feeling that a lot of these trials might be tricks. Yes, and indeed they are. Uh, the, the exact um, trials can vary with the telling, but uh, this is the, the basic uh, uh, rollout here. Uh, first of all, she has to sort a massive pile of seeds in a single night. Okay. And uh, fortunately, some ants help her. Oh, that's a great variation on all the Tweety Birds and Skugs in the Snow White story. You know, oh, where they, yeah. They'll Good come point. in and help with the chores. Now it's ants. And uh, who knows, maybe spiders pitch in a bit. <laughs> well, the next task is that she has to fetch the golden wool from a, like, a monstrous sheep. Uh-huh. Like a kind of sheep that disembowels anyone who gets near it. Oh, and a swarm of cockroaches assist her. <laughs> no, actually, a river god helps her out um, and helps her acquire the wool. So she turns that in. But then she has to venture into the underworld and acquire a drop of the queen of the underworld's beauty. Uh-oh. Yeah, so uh, Cupid, it seems, ends up sort of cluing her in, sends her some signals. Right, because going to the underworld isn't easy. Right, yeah, it's it's a, a dangerous proposition. So Cupid clues her in, uh, you know, secret messages, letting her know, make sure you bring coins for Tyrone and treats for Cerberus. Important uh, things to bring along. Right. Uh, so she does this. She wins that drop, brings it back in a golden box, and brings it to the surface. She's on her way to deliver it to Venus, but then she decides, well, I'm going to steal a little bit of the, uh, that beauty from the box for myself. Uh-oh. And then she d- discovers the box is full of sleep. Sleep comes over her. Cupid comes to her w- and wakes her up, gives her the nectar of the gods, and makes her a god as well, the embodiment of the soul. And she later gives birth to pleasure. That's a heck of a story. Oh, yeah. There are various treatments of this story, uh, various uh, you know, additional stories such as Beauty and the Beast take this basic structure and then uh, you know, employ it in a slightly different manner. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's the major Cupid narrative. But uh, there's also a, a fun one that employs his arrows uh, in, in an interesting way. In which both he, of them this time, Yeah, right? both of them as he messes with the god Apollo. Uh-huh. So Apollo is a powerful god. And he's, uh, he's, he's lusting after the nymph Daphne. And uh, while he's in, in the midst of this, he taunts Cupid's archery ability. He says, oh, you're not much of an archer, are you? And so— uh, It's always good to taunt people holding ranged weapons. Well, again, the gods are, are vain and, <laughs> you know, kind of in, it's in vengeful, and vengeful, but also kind of stupid at times. Mm-hmm. So uh, what Cupid does is he shoots Apollo with a golden arrow that makes him, of course, you know, lust like crazy after Daphne. But then he shoots Daphne with a leaden arrow. Ensuring that she wants nothing to do with this. Exactly. In fact, she runs away to her father, who also happens to be a river god, and has him turn her into a tree so that Apollo will leave her alone. Oh, no. 
And then Cupid, you know, goes off and, and laughs about the whole affair. Now, wait, after this, is Apollo still in love with the tree or not? It really depends on the user agreement with yeah. <laughs> on, the, <laughs> yeah. uh, on the golden arrow. How does the golden arrow magic work? Can you transform the essence of the target of the affection and does that cancel the spell? Or do you have to roll a d20 to find out? I don't know. And then are, you know, are the effects on gods, do, is that a little different than an effect on a mortal? Mm-hmm. Who can say? Now, you might think, uh, okay, Cupid sounds like he makes some enemies here and there. Who's his greatest rival? Uh, is there like a safety god who's always trying to take his arrows away? <laughs> no, no, no. It's none other than the great god Pan. What? Oh, yep. one of our favorites. Yeah. In one corner, we have the flighty arrow-shooting uh, cherubic son of, of, of Venus, uh, the lord of love. And in the other corner, we have the wild, rutting he-goat king of fornication, uh, surrounded by nymphs prancing through the forest. And so it's divine love versus earthly love. And uh, spoiler alert, Cupid often comes out on top. In fact, there are some there are paintings that depict uh, Cupid kind of wrestling uh, Pan to the ground. Could you also say that this is like city love versus country love? I like, guess you could, yeah. Like, like the, Pan was sort of envisioned as the the representative of the I don't know the the amorous affairs of like shepherds and country people. Yeah, it is kind of country love versus uh, you know <laughs> uh, the, the 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 divine love of Mount Olympus here. On the other hand, when you look up our artistic uh, interpretations of Pan, he is often wrestling or doing something like wrestling. So it's yeah. it's hard to say he's definitely on the losing end of the scenario here. Yeah, Pan's a rascal. Yeah. <laughs> now, in terms of other treatments of of Cupid, uh, you know, we're not going to go through. Uh, you know all the uh, the echoes uh, in popular culture. I did notice just that, the most dignified ones. Yes, <laughs> I, I did notice that there is a uh, there is a Cupid in uh, what DC Comics. That's kind of a feisty redhead, uh, and it's a and it's a, a female. Oh, okay. It's like a cohort of the the Green Arrow. Okay, is she a goddess or just a human named Cupid? I think she's just a human who shoots arrows at people. Yeah. Okay, so I, it's uh, not a Thor situation. I don't think so. If any cu- comic book fans out there that want to. Um, you know, uh, clue us in on this. Okay. We'd love to hear more. But I think she just shoots arrows at people and tries to kill them. You know, independent of you coming up with this lead, Robert, I immediately was Googling, like, Cupid horror movie. Mm-hmm. Is there one? Oh, and yes. And I, I came across something only to discover that you'd already given it a little write-up here. Yes, a 2001 slasher film uh, titled Valentine. <laughs> now, have, have you seen this before? No, I... Looked up a couple of scenes on YouTube. One actually had kind of a cool set with like somebody who's like walking through a maze made out of TV screens or something. That yeah. I, I kind of like that. But otherwise, it looks so stupid. And it has the ultimate like 2001 smart face cast where it's got David Boreanaz and Denise Richards. It's like the cast of Starship Troopers. <laughs> it also has a has a, a 2001 alternative rock album, like the most 2001 alternative rock album uh, imaginable. Uh-huh. Yeah, the, the soundtrack is... Um, Does it have, uh, what, Down With The Sickness? Uh, it doesn't have that particular track, but Disturbed uh, is present. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and 
yeah, you can pretty much uh, extrapolate from there what else is on the soundtrack. But it does have this killer stalking around, this slasher character with a Cupid mask. And there is one scene at least where he kills somebody with arrows. And that's the sequence you're, you're talking about with all the, the TVs. Oh, okay. So, yeah, th- as far as slasher films worth seeing, uh, it's been too long since I've seen it to really give it a firm recommendation. But as far as slasher films worth looking up the kills on YouTube, I give it a, <laughs> I give it a thumbs up. <laughs> But in this movie, if I, unless I'm mistaken, uh, no gold arrows and lead blunt arrows, right? Right. I think he just has normal killing arrows because he's ultimately not an actual god. That would have been a fun twist, though. They don't get deep into the resonances of the mythology. No, because if there is a lot there. You could really go, go nuts with, for instance, the fact that Cupid is often depicted riding around on dolphins or even sometimes just on sea monsters. That's odd. Yeah. And, uh, you know, know, we mentioned Beauty and the Beast already, but I I should throw out there, even though I I haven't read it, and I don't know why I haven't read it, because I read a a whole lot of C.S. Lewis at one point in my life. Mm -hmm. But C.S. Lewis uh, retells the story of of Cupid and Psyche in the 1956 novel, Till We Have Faces. Hmm. I've never read that either, but that sounds maybe worth checking out. So, again, we could keep going on Cupid. We could keep talking about various mythological treatments, different versions of the stories. Um, But basically what we want to drive home here is that, first of all, he has these two arrows. Yeah. He has the the leaden arrow and the golden arrow, and these are the powers associated. And we also just want to drive home that he is more than just this ridiculous cartoon baby. No, he's an epic creep cartoon baby who wrestles <laughs> goat men and rides on sea monsters. Indeed he is. So on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to discuss the leaden arrow of Cupid. We're going to get into what ancient people knew of lead, how they used lead, what they thought about its properties. And then, of course, we'll, 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 we'll dive a little bit into the periodic table and discuss exactly <laughs> what lead is. All right, we're back. So, Robert, we have already told the story of Cupid, as uh, especially as described in Ovid's Metamorphoses, uh, and in the story of these two different arrows. He's got the gold arrow, which imparts love, makes people fancy one another, and the lead arrow, which is blunt and maybe seems to cause aversion, at least in some tellings of the story. Right. Like if, if you were hit with the lead arrow and somebody uh, passed you a note in, in, in high school and uh-huh. said, will you go out with me? Yes. And no, you would add a third box that said, I would rather my father turn me into a tree. Yeah, your head would just explode like in scanners. Well, other than the general association of gold being thought of as good, is there anything, any reason we can think of why these particular metals are picked to have the magical significance they do in the arrows in the myth? Well, yeah, exactly. With gold, obviously gold is beautiful and humans have thought it's beautiful for ages and we've been perfectly happy to squabble over it and kill each other over it. So it seems the the perfect substance to sum up the uh, appeal and then sometimes the dangers of love. Mm-hmm. Plus, knowing what we know now, this was an element that was likely produced in the collisions of, of neutron stars long before the formation of the Earth. Which is amazing to consider, by the way. I mean, just to contemplate this for a moment – 
Uh, you know, it was once thought that most of the universe's heavy elements, like elements heavier than iron, were created in supernovas, which is when a massive star at the end of its life cycle collapses on itself and then explodes. And supernovas can create some heavy elements, but some scientists have argued for a while that there are too many heavy elements, that the, the proportion of them that we find in the universe is too high to be accounted for by what's possible from supernovas alone – so in recent years, there have been some cool experiments that have shown that the collision of neutron stars, like you say, could be the alternative. Uh, for example, I was looking at – there was a study published in 2018 in the Astrophysical Journal by Cote et al. that looked at data from a neutron star merger. And I love that's the technology they use. It's like <laughs> two companies, like mergers and acquisitions. Well, they should have used the language of love because uh -huh. we are creating a substance that will one day be used by the god of love. Right. It is. It should be neutron star copulation. Yes. <laughs> neutron starter course. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, th this collision was between 85 and 160 million light years away. And the researchers calculated that this one event, these two neutron stars colliding, produced between one and five Earth masses of an element called europium and between three and 13 Earth masses of gold. Earth masses of gold. So just think about a solid gold Earth and then between three and 13 of them. And then it just like, spits a bunch of this out into the universe to get bound up with other gases and stuff like that and eventually end up in maybe, say, a planetary accretion disk where it becomes part of the crust of an Earth. So if you're wearing like a gold ring or any other piece of gold right now or if you're maybe, maybe say, using an electronic device that has a bit of gold in it, just think about how that element was forged either in the guts of a dying star as it exploded or was probably more likely created in the chaos of rapid neutron capture when two of the densest objects in the universe, two neutron stars, smashed together billions of years ago. And, of course, I guess the even crazier thing is that that doesn't stop at gold, right? Like uh, our oh, yeah. amazement at the elements uh, shouldn't stop there because all the heavy elements had to be formed at some point. In fact, all the elements of any kind had to be formed at some point. A few of the, the lightest ones are primordial. You know, you find hydrogen and helium and lithium out in the original universe. Uh, and then a few more, I think, are formed by like uh, cosmic rays and stuff. But beyond that, pretty much everything that you could see and touch and that your body is made of was in some way forged inside a dying star. Uh, you know, you got this dying star forge that has slow neutron capture going on inside it, or it was a supernova explosion or the collision of neutron stars or something like that. Yeah, these are the very kind of forges one can imagine a god like Vulcan would employ, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's what's happening when he pumps the bellows. He's just pumping it to smash neutron stars together. And of course, you know, you mentioned that, you know, anything heavier than iron uh, likely had this, this kind of cosmic origin, and that includes lead. Oh, so, certainly, So yeah. even though it's easy to, to say, oh, the golden arrow forged uh, in, in cosmic turmoil in, in ages past, well, the same story applies to lead, even though it's not as shiny, even though uh, you probably don't have any lead in jewelry on your body right now. Right. Uh, though, I mean, lead is an amazing element, and to consider the same way, I think – I think there are two main explanations for lead. As uh, I believe, one is that there's slow neutron capture, like the S process, that takes place within dying stars, and the other is the 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 hot dense starter course, the uh, the neutron star collision. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> 
Now, to come back to Cupid's arrow, I imagine basically the idea of the lead and arrow is that lead is not attractive. Lead is not beautiful. Right. Uh, lead is uh, something that in, even in ancient times, it was rarely used in jewelry. Uh, or at least as the primary uh, aspect of the jewelry. Well, no, and, and even more. Uh, I don't know if you can be mean to lead, but mm-hmm. if you if lead has feelings, you could hurt its feelings even more by pointing out that lead, you know, lead doesn't occur generally free in nature. Mm-hmm. Lead occurs bound up in ores, uh, and so primarily the way lead was created in the ancient world was as a byproduct of the creation of silver. Right. And so people are trying to extract silver for some from something, and you melt out some lead as a sort of waste product of that. And it, and it did have uses because it's got a high specific weight. So you could use it as like a, a weight for, you know, if you have like fishing line or oh, fishing exactly, nets yeah. or something you want to hold down. that It's useful for that. It's not very good for making like solid like weapons or anything, right? Because it, it's very soft. Yeah, it's it's not going to be it's not going to be a good uh, metal if you want to actually forge arrows for combat or forge any kind of say armor. Um, but the, but there are a lot of uses for it if you want to create say drinking vessels or certainly if you want to create pipes. We're not advocating that, by the way. No, no. But certainly from a very early point, humans were figuring this out. Lead is one of the seven metals of antiquity. Uh, humans were handling lead. A long time ago, uh, cast lead beads found in modern-day Turkey date from roughly 6500 BCE. The ancient Egyptians used lead as early as 5000 BCE for pottery glazes, solder, and casting. Yeah, and uh, so I was looking at early examples of lead artifacts. One example I found was a, a sort of maybe aesthetic artifact or maybe something that was used in like a, a whirl for, for uh, you know, working with textiles. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was in a cave in the Negev Desert in Israel, and it supposedly dates to the late 5th millennium BCE. And it's just basically this wooden wand that's got leaden beads at the end of it, and they don't know what it's for. Oh, wow. Though I wonder if maybe it's for some kind of heavy metal lead magic. Yeah, a, an anti-love repulsion ray, perhaps. <laughs> uh, so we can hope. <laughs> so the, the the Babylonians made inscriptions on lead plates. Oh yeah, because well. it's soft. You can inscribe mm-hmm. things on it. And just to refer everyone back to our October episode on curses, uh, we spent a fair amount of time discussing Roman curse tablets. Oh yeah, we did. And what were those made out of? Well, like the the ones found in um, in like second or third century Roman Britain were often they were made in lead. So there are these places where you can go around like modern day Leicester and dig up these ancient sites where there would be uh, maybe a shrine or a temple to an ancient god. Maybe in the syncretic religions of Roman Britain, where you'd sort of combine maybe Roman gods with uh, with native Celtic gods or, mm-hmm. or or the gods of Britain there. And people would be going there to, say, curse somebody who stole something from them. Like, you know, Cervantes shows up and says, somebody stole my cloak. Whoever stole my cloak, I want him to not be able to pee for three months (laughs) unless he gives me my cloak back. And this would be inscribed on a lead tablet and hung up somewhere. And part of the idea there is that it was partially to invoke this power, but also maybe just to have it hung up in a public place so people could, like, know what was going on. Now, one other important aspect of lead that uh, that I wonder – and I wonder if it played into the use of uh, – into the creation of these uh, cursed tablets is that uh, lead does not corrode like other metals. So – if you if you if you inscribe your curse in a piece of lead, like that's a curse that could speak across the ages. 
Right. Lead doesn't rust. I mean, well, lead lead oxides do form, mm-hmm. but they're not uh, they're they're not like uh, like iron rust. You know, the red rusty stuff. Uh, lead oxide tends to be gray, but generally exposed lead doesn't corrode. And uh, and th- th- yeah, this does make it attractive, especially for some purposes. Say, like if you want to make something that holds liquids in it. Right. Something that is not going to receive a lot of punishment. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about that, uh, uh, the, the weakness of it. Uh, but uh, yeah, you could use it for drinking vessels or certainly for plumbing pipes. Here's a gross piece of trivia. Next time you have to call a plumber because who knows what, you tried to flush a whole roll of paper towels down the toilet, <laughs> consider that the English words plumber and plumbing are derived from the Latin word plumbum, which means lead. And it's right there in the chemical <laughs> element symbol for lead on the periodic table. You ever notice that? It's one of those weird ones like iron is F-E. Why mm-hmm. is that? Well, you know, it comes from an archaic word uh, like the ferrous metal. Uh, lead on the periodic table is P-B. Why is it P-B? That comes from plumbum. Because ancient Romans loved some lead pipes and lead aqueducts and lead reservoirs and lead cisterns, lead cooking vessels and lead-based, even lead-based food additives. And we'll come back to the the food additives uh, (laughs) point. Now, I was looking at 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 one text from Cassis and and Sordo uh, titled Lead, Chemistry, Analytical Aspects, Environmental Impact, and Health Effects. And they pointed out that ancient texts showed a a bit of confusion over lead and other elements using plumbum to describe, quote, any silvery, white, low-melting, and easily oxidized metal including lead, tin, zinc, etc., they pointed out, though, that, yeah, lead pipes uh, have been used for a very long time. Uh, you see them in uh, ancient Mesopotamia, Cyprus, Persia, Egypt, Greece, Rome, of course, and various Roman provinces. So, you know, the technology and the materials would have spread with the Romans as well. And the Romans likely learned it from the Greeks. And it wasn't just the pipes. It was used in, uh, you know, cases where iron wire or wooden hoops are currently used today, you know, as reinforcing brands for bands for tanks, vats, uh, amphora, etc. So you see it also used uh, in masonry, cesspool coverings, roofing, damp proofing foundations, uh, uh, parapet walls, etc. Lead vessels were widely used. And uh, this is interesting. Lead was also long associated with funeral rites. So Roman era caskets and urns are often uh, made uh, at least in part from lead, uh, especially apparently in England. Lead was also used in ancient China in a variety of uh, uses uh, from glass making to cosmetics. Of course, now in the modern world, we know that lead can have extremely serious health consequences, uh, can and very often does. Like it, there, there are tons of ways to get lead in your body and lead exposure can happen through through ingestion when, when you eat it, can happen through breathing in lead particles, can happen through absorption through the skin. And lead gets incorporated into the body and leads to both short-term and long-term negative consequences. The short-term negative consequences are – there are a lot of different ones, so it can be sometimes hard to identify lead exposure in people, but it might be like you've got stomach distress, like your stomach hurts and you're constipated, but it also can lead to weakness and fatigue and like your arms and legs are weak and it can lead to psychological and neurological consequences. People can be like like tired and depressed and irritable, have loss of appetite, have trouble remembering things. Yeah, I mean, it's enough to make you think, is my smartphone made out of lead? <laughs> but, uh, 
but it's, it's, we were actually talking about this before um, we recorded the episode. Like, there's so mm-hmm. much to the story of 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 our realization regarding oh. the harmful effects of lead that we really need to come back to it and devote an entire episode. Absolutely. To yes, yes, absolutely. We're going to do a whole episode on lead someday soon. I think maybe with a, a special focus on the Lord of Lead, Clarice Patterson. Oh, yes. But yeah, we, we now know lead to have all these problems. And they're also the long-term consequences, right? Those mm-hmm. are just like short-term right. consequences I was mentioning. You know, it can there could be neurological damage from long-term exposure to lead. Enough lead in a concentrated dose can kill you. There are definitely uh, like developmental problems that children who have lead exposure experience. So it's uh, – yeah, it's no joke. And the fact that humans have constantly surrounded ourselves for centuries or even millennia with just constant routes of exposure to, to environmental lead is – something that is really horrifying and ridiculous, but I guess that's just what we do. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get back to this idea of lead as a food additive. <laughs> so hang, hang in there. Uh, soon it'll be time to eat some lead. All right, we're back. Okay, it's Valentine's Day. What do you get your sweetheart on Valentine's Day? Sometimes there are flowers, Mm -hmm. but, uh, oh, I guess it's already there in the name, right? You get your sweetheart some sweets. Right. Now, here's a question I've wondered about before, but I've never found a good answer to. Why is it that we associate sweet foods with, like, eroticism, but not so much, like, other flavors? Like, why isn't it that you get your sweetheart some salty foods on Valentine's Day or you get them some bitter foods or sour foods. Why sweet? Hmm. I mean, sweets are a, a decadent treat, right? I mean, I, I guess that's a part of it. Um, sweet is something – sweets are something we always, we're always craving and, uh, and, and we're just hardwired to want as much of it as possible given that it would be a rarity in the natural world. But we also crave fat and salt. Why not like for Valentine's Day instead of a box of chocolates, it's like a bag of pork rinds and a stick of butter. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I guess it would be harder to just keep that uh, secreted away in the back of the closet for a week or so. Um, but I don't know. I feel like there, you, 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 people celebrate cheeses on Valentine's. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, certainly there are other foods that have a like a romantic or aphrodisiac, uh, uh, you know, vibe to them. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, you know, I guess part of what I'm wondering is is that link between like love and eroticism and sweet foods is that cultural or is there some biological element to it? Oh man, we'll have to come back and explore that. That yeah. would be that would be interesting to look at. Like. When you look at other cultures, is there something else that is considered the romantic flavor profile? Um, I don't know. You know, considering how many, like, Scandinavian people have written into the show to to talk about the wonders of salty licorice, I bet that's what they use over there. Yeah, and plus it makes me wonder about, uh, say, Chinese traditions where mm-hmm. there's so much emphasis placed on the balance of different flavors. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, the, how does that impact uh, sort of ritualized uh, sweets. All right, well, let's talk about the sweetest of all sweets, sweet lead. Oh. <laughs> so I found what has got to be the best entry ever in any Oxford companion. So I was reading the Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets. Oh, nice. Yeah, uh, so it's Oxford University Press, and there's an entry in it by the American chemist Michelle M. Fransel. And this has just got to be one of the best, like, encyclopedia-type entries I've ever read. So, Francel writes about this stu- substance called sugar of lead, hmm. also known as lead 
lead acetate or lead two acetate. Uh, it looks kind of like large salt crystals if you look it up, or it looks maybe like translucent rock candy. Well, the kind of stuff you get on the little stick, right? Yeah, but like sort of like white translucent in color. Okay. And Francel writes, quote, it is sweet, roughly as sweet per teaspoon as sugar, and only slightly more lethal than strychnine. <laughs> So sugar of lead was used as like a medical treatment in 19th century Europe. And even though it is sweet, it is technically a salt, which is an electrically neutral collection of positive ions and negative ions. And actually, we only think of salts as salty in flavor because the most common salt that we refer to is sodium chloride, table salt. But salts don't have to be salty. Salts can be bitter and salts can be sweet. And in this case, it is sweet. So in lead acetate, this collection of of oppositely charged ions is made from dipositive lead ions and negatively charged acetate ions. And it turns out sugar of lead is not the only sweet metallic salt. Francel points out that lots of beryllium salts are very sweet. So sweet, in fact, that the Greek word for the element beryllium is glucinium from like glucose or glycos, the Greek word for sweet. Hmm. Uh, but as good as these metal salts that are sweet taste, they are very bad for you. Lead acetate can be fatal to a 70-kilogram or 150-pound adult at a dose of three teaspoons. So basically what you're saying is that if anybody has any fancy dining plans this evening <laughs> and they see any lead-based sweeteners on the menu— I would um, advise against it. Okay. Uh, nevertheless, there is some evidence that the ancient Romans used a, indirectly, I would say, indirectly used this lead salt as a kind of sweetener or at least as a way of avoiding other types of taste imparted into their foods. So here's how this goes. The Romans created a syrup that they called sapa, which was produced by boiling down a liquid called must. Must is basically weak wine. Okay. Francel describes it as, quote, mildly fermented grape juice. So there would be a little bit of alcohol content, maybe kind of like grape beer almost. Okay. Of course, must, like wine, has some acid in it. It has acetic acid, and acetic acid is the acid basis of vinegar. Vinegar is usually just acetic acid diluted with water or some other aqueous substance. And acetic acid provides acetate ions, which can react with metals in the pots where they are boiled, and, uh, and this can result in some salts. So if you boil your must in a copper pot, the resulting sapa will have some copper acetate salts in it, and these taste really bad, like they're bitter. Uh, even ancient Roman writers would, would comment on this. In the natural history, Pliny discusses the production of sapa, and he writes, quote, leaden vessels should be used for this purpose, not copper ones. So he's <laughs> like, get that copper out of there, makes the sapa taste bad, you want lead, except no less. <laughs> So why use lead? Because remember, lead salts are sweet. So not only does cooking in lead pots not foul your sapa, it might make it even a little bit sweeter. Hmm. Uh, and this is a quote from uh, this is a quote from Francis Hendry. Quote: Chemical analysis of sapa produced according to recipes dating from the classical Roman period, using kettles of similar metallic composition as those found at Pompeii and other sites, suggests that the lead content of sapa was 850 milligrams per liter, many thousand times higher than what is generally allowable in drinking water. Even diluted and used sparingly, sweetening with sapa was a serious risk. Oh, wow. Now, I have seen some people 
phrase this as like that the the lead pots were used specifically to make the sapa sweeter. And Francel sort of disagrees with that because she says the the lead was probably not really intended to add much sweetness to the wine because it wouldn't put it wouldn't add that much really. You you'd already have a pretty sweet substance and it'd mm-hmm. be the equivalent of adding like a pinch of sugar to it. So it wouldn't make a huge difference. It was more that the lead vessels if they when they did add flavor would sort of complement the existing sweetness rather than adding a foul, bitter flavor like copper vessels would. Ah, okay. So in a blind taste test of the in, in which both vessels have the same uh, already sweet or semi-sweet wine, mm-hmm. you're going to find that the leaden vessel is going to impart a, like a slightly sweeter, less foul experience. Well, probably significantly less foul. But yeah, it, I, I don't know if there's evidence that they thought of it as the lead comes out and makes it a lot sweeter. They just thought, oh, you use lead pots, it tastes way better in the end. However, this is one of those cases where we also can't just make fun of the ancients because this this kind of thing carried on until ridiculously recent times. She points out that the use of lead as a food additive and treatment did not stop in ancient Rome and that lead equipment and additives were used to prevent spoilage in wine in some cases up until the 19th century. Oh, wow. Now, we do have to just drive home for everybody, even though, again, we're not getting deep into the, 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 the dangers of lead in this episode. Mm-hmm. Please, if you were, if you were tempted, all, tempted at all, do not go out and drink uh, a bunch of wine out of lead vessels just to, uh, to, to test uh, uh, the, the sweetening ability of the, of the vessel. The amount of lead you should be absorbing on purpose is zero. Right. Whatever you're accidentally getting from the environment is still probably more than you want. And there's actually a lot more stuff. There's been an ongoing argument over the years uh, about the role of lead ingestion and lead exposure in ancient Rome. Because before ancient Rome, there was lead. People did use lead to make some objects, but it wasn't used in wide, like widespread construction and infrastructure and all that. Uh, right. The Romans were the ones that really started using lead for a lot of stuff. And in 1983, a Canadian researcher named uh, Jerome Nuriagu argued that lead poisoning actually led to the downfall of the Roman Empire. You've probably heard this before. Yeah, the idea that they just uh, they, they built up all this lead, uh, essentially lead infrastructure, and then poisoned themselves with Yeah, and cooked with this, especially the cooking with lead vessels, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and so th- this has later been called into doubt by others who said, you know, I, it doesn't necessarily seem like we can claim that. Uh, but there's no doubt that many Robans were exposed to unsafe levels of lead. I was just looking at a study from 2014 in PNAS by the uh, by Delil et al. called Lead in Ancient Rome City Waters. And, and they found that the tap water, you know, basically the aqueduct delivered water uh, or delivered through some kind of lead infrastructure, that water in ancient Rome would have roughly 100 times the lead content of local spring water. Oh, wow. it's a lot of lead. All right. Well, as we we wind down here, let's just let's just talk uh, once more about just the properties of lead. Right. And I wonder if, in looking at these properties, we can figure out what makes it so special as as the opposite of the love inducing golden arrow. Yeah. Yeah. And and indeed, why Cupid would have uh, walked up to his possible father Vulcan and said, "Hey, uh, what metal should you use to make my repulsion arrows?" What would make Vulcan say, oh, yeah, lead. Lead is what you want. Uh, Okay. Well, one thing we know about lead is that for a metal, it has a pretty low melting point, right? 
Right. And this means it's a lot easier to cast with, requires less equipment, and it made an ideal uh, solder component. Yeah. So if you want to melt something easily to like seal things together, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, yeah, and I've read this also makes it like an attractive additive if you're like – casting something in a mold. Right. And then to your point earlier, like it was there as a byproduct of going after other metals. Yeah. So it was available. Um, In addition, we've talked about this a little bit, uh, lead is dense. Uh, It is – it's a heavy metal and lead's density is due to its high atomic mass, short bond lengths and a small atomic radius. And this along with its high number of electrons needed to maintain a neutral charge makes it a useful radiation shield uh, in our modern world, uh, scattering X-rays and gamma rays. Yeah, and so you'll actually see it in use in in places where there's a radiation risk. There are sometimes lead blocks deployed as as basically like the sandbags of the radiation world. Yeah, I, I, I mean, my uh, my father was a dentist, mm-hmm. and and so I was often you know, hanging out in dental offices. And part of that is being uh, being near an X ray machine, and mm-hmm. of course that big big heavy lead uh, lined smock, right? That the lead one bib, yeah. yeah. So uh, so yeah, you see you see this kind of uh, radiation shielding all over. Kind of makes me think back to our 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 episode on the X ray machine that we mm-hmm. did for invention. So certainly, if you want more on on uh, the use of x-rays and the, the dangers of radiation associated with that with x-rays i highly recommend that episode of our other show invention and then the third major a- a- uh, attribute of lead is that it is soft and it's malleable uh, it's limits its usage somewhat uh, you know while a god might be able to craft an arrow out of it or coat an arrow with lead anyway you're not going to be able to fashion anything with it that can sustain any real stress uh, but when you're talking about something like water and sewage pipes or cooking vessels, uh, yeah, that that is an area where lead can uh, can excel as long as you're not getting into uh, questions of whether it'll poison you or not. Just from a physical on a physical basis, it can get the job done. You wouldn't want like a lead hammer, though. I think you, you can have like lead alloy hammers and stuff. Like you can mm-hmm. use alloys to strengthen metals that are inherently soft. Right. So coming back to Cupid, I mean, maybe the idea is that the the lead and arrows are somehow combating the the radiation of intense passionate love. The power of love is actually a it's a it's a type of ray. It's what's beyond gamma rays. Yeah, and you've got to scatter those love rays, and the only way to do it is with uh, with some high end um, god forged uh, leaden uh, ammunition. I'm seeing another resonance here because one of the sources we didn't mention – so we talked about how lead can be created in like events in space inside like a dying star Mm -hmm. and the collision of neutron stars. We also didn't talk about another – I think it probably accounts for a much, much smaller percentage of it. But lead can be created as the byproduct of radioactive decay. Ah. Like uranium can decay into some isotopes of lead. So maybe if we're considering that love is a type of radioactivity or type of ray, there actually lead represents what happens when love dies and decays, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. So like love fades and eventually it becomes lead. What starts as this golden, splendid, sharp arrow becomes this blunt, dull, lusterless instrument. We have crucified this myth and taken out all of the beauty <laughs> <laughs> and turned it into a chemical Frankenstein. I'm so proud of us. Yeah, I, I feel like we have – we've done a good job here today taking the uh, the, the candy-coated and, and kind of lame holiday of Valentine's Day. And I think we've injected some fresh life into it. We fed it a lot of lead. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and, and, the, and, uh, and in doing so, we've, we've killed off a lot of the uh, – 
uh, the more irritable aspects of the holiday. Sweet, sweet lead. Yes. <laughs> so big takeaways from from today. Yes. Uh, don't eat lead sugar. Right. Don't do not do it. Don't cook in lead pots. Right. Don't drink from lead leaden vessels if you have a choice in the matter. Okay. Be wary of gods uh, with bows and arrows. Right. Mm -hmm. And and keep in mind that, yeah, Cupid has two arrows. So if he's aiming at you, uh, it's kind of a toss-up which one he's trying to hit you with. And sometimes even the great god Pan gets out-wrestled. Exactly. All right. So we're going to close out this special Valentine's Day episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. But as always, if you want to check out more episodes of the show— you can always head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the show. You'll find links out to various social media accounts. You can, of course, find us anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, that's that's true across the board. So just search for us there. So wherever you find us, subscribe. And if you have the power to do so on these platforms, give us a, a rating. Throw as many stars as possible at us. The golden kind, not the lead ones. <laughs> uh, and then leave a nice message about how, how awesome the show is because uh, you know, these, these may seem like small things, but they really help us out in the long run. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind@howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.